I need this to work. He was announcing the arrival of something. Um, John the Baptist had used a similar term about the kingdom of God coming near, but when the language that he used meant that it was almost here, as though that God was pulling up into the driveway. Whereas when Jesus talked about the kingdom, he used language that described it as present. The kingdom had come, it was here and now. The nearness that Jesus talks about describes proximity and accessibility. The kingdom had come. He also announces the time has come, translated not with the Greek word chronos, as though referring to the time of the clock, uh, on the clock. It wasn't 11 o'clock. Um, but the word kairos, which means just at the right time and speaks of fullness, um, opportunity and urgency. It talks about time spilling over. It's like time had filled up and everything was in place, everything was ready for the kingdom to come. This phrase, the kingdom of God, was obviously familiar to the Jews of Jesus' time. But what the coming of the kingdom meant to them was that God would return as a conquering king. It was a concept of revolution to them, of uprising, where every false king, every Caesar, would fall. And they would experience freedom and peace and prosperity across their land. But Jesus was not your usual king. His declaration redefines their expectation, just as it does for us. The language he uses to describe the coming of the kingdom is translated with another Greek phrase, entos humin, which meant within you or among you. Jesus' message on its own was radical, it was revolutionary, and it was upside down, contrary to people's expectations. But on the outside, it appeared as though nothing had changed. There was no revolution, there was no uprising, there was no change for the people of God. They were still under the government of another ruler, paying their taxes to Rome. Even poor imprisoned John the Baptist asks in Matthew 11, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Imagine asking that of Jesus. To this, Jesus replies, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is preached to the poor. Because these were the real signs of the kingdom. The images that Jesus goes on to use to describe the kingdom are not of fire, they're not of earthquake, they're not of mountains, but everyday things like the mustard seed and yeast in the dough. They were small, hidden, seemingly insignificant things, but they're active, influential, and unstoppable. In the midst of the obvious centrality of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we can miss the point that his very incarnation, his life, demonstrated the breaking in of the kingdom of God. But this was never going to be a one-man show. Our God is relational. His very nature is inclusive. It's diverse and it's invitational. First it was the Jews, then it was the Gentiles. First it was his 12 disciples, and then the 72, and then more. His followers were made up not just of simple fishermen, but all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds, those that we would recognize as civil servants and activists, as well as the wealthy, independent, and influential women who supported his ministry financially. He welcomed the religious and the pagan. He welcomed people from every known nation. We saw the spirit fall on people from every known nation at Pentecost. He welcomed those with a little and those with a lot. And it was always his intention that we would be invited in to roll up our sleeves, get our hands dirty, and do the things that he did. And in Matthew 28, we see where this started. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, 
They worshipped him, but some doubted. We can all relate to that, right? <laughs> then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Here was Jesus, having done what he had done, delegating his authority and commissioning his disciples to do the very things that he had done, to extend the kingdom everywhere. They had no concept of the size of our world, of the uh, diversity of our nations, but Jesus did, and he was sending them out everywhere, to every people, to every tribe, to every tongue. Pentecost was, of course, still to come, where they would receive his empowering presence for themselves. But here, in this instance, he gives them authority, he gives them direction, and he gives them purpose. I think as our British subjects, we like to think that we have a better understanding than most of what a kingdom looks like. You look at um, this week, apparently it was dressed down Queen's speech, but it was, all, it was, it was pretty up there, wasn't it? It was pretty glim. Um, a kingdom refers not just to uh, geography and to territory, but to people and to the places where a sovereign reigns and where they have responsibility. A monarch governs their kingdom, though, through individuals. And interestingly, we call those individuals ministers. And those ministers still carry a delegated authority to act on behalf of the sovereign and in accordance with the laws and traditions of that kingdom. So here Jesus commissions the disciples and gives them his authority for the task that he set before them. Not only his authority, but even more precious, his presence. He says, and surely I will be with you always. And all this for the disciples was in the context of worship. So as we consider what it means to extend the kingdom this weekend, we want to think about what comes first, what comes before that, in what context does this take place? To consider that we cannot extend the kingdom without first having an encounter with the king. Let's turn to Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, Isaiah cried, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You find this picture again in Revelation 4 and 5, and you have this sense that this is what's happening from before creation, through the whole story of the people of Israel. And at this point, as they're in exile, worship is going on in heaven. Angels, seraphim, are crying, holy, 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 and declaring to anything and anyone and everything that would listen that he is the Lord God Almighty and that the earth is full of his glory. And you look to the end of time and it's still happening. And before him there, um, Revelation says that there are people from every tribe and every nation 
to be priests, to be ministers, and they're singing out the same song in worship. The Westminster Confession of Faith is considered by many to be the best statement of systematic theology ever framed by the Christian Church. It was put together by over 150 theologians over 400 years ago. Although since there were undoubtedly no women present, the best statement ever status is up for faith. <laughs> However, its first and most well-known statement uh, is that the chief end of man is to enjoy God and to worship him forever. To enjoy God. How much time do we spend enjoying God? How much sweeter would life be if we spent time enjoying God? It's incredible, isn't it? Of all the things we have on our to-do list, we're invited to come to enjoy God. It's our first call, our highest purpose, to love the Lord our God with all our strength, with all our heart, with all our mind, with everything we've got, to worship the King. In the vineyard we say that worship is our highest priority. When we meet together, we love to worship. I mean, last night, you know, Josh only has to play a chord, and, you know, we're off. We love, we love to worship. It is the most precious thing. And by worship, I mean stopping what we're doing and turning our attention to God and giving him the adoration that he deserves. A very brilliant man called Eugene Peterson, who translated the Bible into the message version, describes worship as this. Worship is the strategy by which we, pre we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. It's the time and place that we assign for deliberate attentiveness to God, because our self-importance is so insidiously relentless that if we don't deliberately interrupt ourselves regularly, we have no chance of attending to him at all at other times and in other places. We need to worship. We need it for ourselves. When we worship, our orientation shifts, and uh, we're turned towards Jesus, and I believe three things happen. Firstly, we see God for who he is, not for who we've imagined him to be all week, not for who the world would tell us that he is, but we see him in all his vastness. We see him in his majesty. We see him as a God of possibility. We see him a God of endless richness. We see him as a God of mercy. As we worship, we are reminding ourselves, we are reminding each other of who he really is, reminding ourselves of the truth, it is only the truth that will set us free. So our perspective changes, our orientation shifts as we worship and we start to see things from his perspective. Secondly, we see ourselves more accurately as the people we really are too, for better and for worse. For Isaiah cries out, woe is me, I am ruined, and as he worshipped. And yet, as I am drawn increasingly into his presence, worship changes me. I become both more like Jesus and more like the person that he made me to be. And instead of those things contradicting each other, they complement each other so that I become more fully me. I care less about the stuff that I thought was so important because I fall more in love with him. And I'm no longer satisfied with the things that the world has to offer because it's so cheap in comparison with him. Instead, in worship, I am surrendering to Jesus. And Jesus is bringing me more fully alive in him, which is then what makes me so attractive and so effective when I go out into the world and I meet those who don't know Jesus. Mm. Otherwise, I've got nothing to give. 
Thirdly, what happens when we worship is that God shows up. That we know that God is here. We know that his presence is with us. He made that promise to be with us always. But here we are, singing away in our little songs to him. And he shows up. He increases his presence. He, he enlarges himself. We somehow open up to him. We make room for him when we worship. I think that's why he increases his presence. Because we're making more room for him. So he comes. And in his presence is his power. We worship him because of who he is. But as we worship, we receive what we need. We receive freedom. We receive courage, empowering and equipping. So that the kingdom is extended. Not just in here, which is miraculous enough. But out there. And we need his power for that. We need his presence. If we are going to be the people that we are made to be, creative and courageous, bearing this delegated authority of his, we need his presence because we have work to do. Pete Gregg um, describes this beautifully in a recent article. We are called to incarnate the presence of God in streets, in hospitals, in schools, and so on. God's objective is not that we pray in some kind of transactional way, and then get on with our days, but that our very living and breathing is an inbreaking of the kingdom. It's an act of emancipation for those who are oppressed. It's an act of sharing the gospel for those who need the good news. So then we ask, how on earth do we live like that? I think one of the keys to that is that we recenter on God's presence. We receive the spirit of God afresh on a regular basis so that we leave his presence wherever we go. Amen to that. So we worship the king to extend the kingdom. We turn our attention to him, but it never becomes self-serving because he turns our attention outwards to others. What might that look like in the city where we live? Can you believe the things that London has experienced in the last few weeks? We've all had that sense of, of waking up and looking up, whether it's our phones or seeing a headline and being shocked again something else terrible has happened most of us will have experienced fear anxiety sadness anger over the last few weeks that will be multiplied across across the city with people having nowhere to go with it people having nothing to do with it whether they stuff it inside whether they take it out on somebody else but something has happened across london in the last few weeks for some of you this you need to know that this is not normal, what just happened. This is, this is not normal, the things that have happened. This is traumatic. This is terrible. We have a city that's in need. Many of us are in need in how to respond to the things that we've seen and we've heard over the last few weeks. London is a very challenging place, but God loves cities. Mm. I love the... the um, the idea, the, the sense that the story of God begins in a garden and it ends in a city. There are famous verses in Jeremiah 29, which I think we all love. Um, but did you know that they are preceded by some other verses? So the ones we love are, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. We know that, right? Some of you have probably got tattoos of that. <laughs> <laughs> and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you. Another version says, seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of the city. 
get a tattoo of that on your ass. Seek a peace and prosperity in the city to which I have called you into exile. Pray to the Lord, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. As believers, I think we respond to the city. Perhaps you've responded in the last few weeks in, in three ways. The first way, I think, is we feel intimidated by the city. I mean, come on, who doesn't in what's happened recently? We feel terrified, but we also, we can feel contaminated by the city, by the apparent lack of values, by the multiculturalism, by the ambition. We can feel terrified sometimes by people's ambition. We can feel terrified that we're going to be swept up in the hedonism of it all. But Jesus tells us that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. It's good. We can try and imitate the city. You know, it's that thing we do where they meet in pubs, so we're going to meet in pubs. They meet in clubs, so we're going to meet in clubs. We're really good at this because we're so cool. They meet in cafes, so you know what? Cafe culture. That's what we're going to do. We think we're so cool. We don't need to imitate the city. Some of us go to work and we're trying so hard to be like those around us so that we can blend in. Don't try and be like those around you. You don't need to be a stick in the mud. You don't need to be pious and self-righteous for the sake of it. But we don't need to imitate what we see in the world because we serve a creative God. We are to innovate. We are to do things differently. God has always called his people to be distinct, to be different. Jesus used unexpected images to describe the kingdom of God, like we said, mustard seed and yeast in the dough. But he also used things like salt. Salt flavors its environment. It influences what's around it, subtly and slowly over time. He also used light. Light dispels darkness. God called his people to be a light to the nations. So many of those rules that we don't understand in um, Leviticus, many of them are health and safety for people who were traveling uh, nomadically through the desert. But, but a lot of them were to set them apart from the people around them, to set them apart from the pagans, so that they looked different. So the people asked them, why do you behave like that? Why do you do that? Why is that important to you? And then they would have an opportunity to share that they were the God of, they served the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus himself described him, Jesus himself described himself as the light of the world. But he also said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. Do one of those charismatic things now. Say to yourself, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Many of you have already grasped this. Many of you go into your workplace and you're very much aware of the light that you bring to that place, of the salt that you are in that place. You're, very, you're driven very much by desire to be different. And, and I love that, and that's fantastic. Um, Matt and Ed talked a few Sundays back about and being in their workplaces, um, Ed works for an MP and Matt works in the police force, and they use this phrase, faithful presence, that they would be a faithful presence in the places where they work. And I love that. I've never heard that before. 
and uh, I've been chewing it over in the last few weeks, and I think it's a fantastic way of thinking about how we are in our workplaces and the places where we go every day. I'd like to describe to you two of my friends who um, are worshippers of the king and um, are just examples of ways that we extend the kingdom. My friend James, he's a family law barrister. He works on high-profile, high-money divorce cases. Um, Ten years ago, he became aware of um, child labour being used to harvest cocoa for Cadbury's. And he joined the campaign then to ensure that all of Cadbury's chocolate was fairly traded. As a result of this, he got involved with an organisation called International Justice Mission, uh, which I always think sounds like Christian um, Thunderbirds. <laughs> um, he got involved with an organisation called IJM, who work across the world against modern slavery and child trafficking. They're an extraordinary organisation. Um, this led to him setting aside his lucrative career, uprooting his then young family of three, and moving to Bangalore in India where he led um, uh, raids into brick kilns, um, uh, like amazing stories of liberation, of the hard work that goes into gathering witness statements and then going in and liberating tens, uh, yeah, upwards of 20, 30, 40 people at a time, families who are being held at, um, working in bonded labour and being released um, to freedom. He was there for two years before a life-threatening illness brought him home. Uh, he, was, uh, he had had cancer twice before, and uh, the third time when he was in um, India, uh, the cancer returned. After he had painfully and miraculously recovered from this, he returned to being a barrister. He's now QC. And whilst at the same time as volunteering for IJM in the UK, he was instrumental in drafting our new Modern Slavery Act. Another friend of mine works for an international PR firm acting for globally recognised brands. She's worked her way through the ranks, she's navigated maternity leave, she's returned to work and co-parenting with her spouse. Throughout all that, she's served within her capacity at her local church, and mainly as a trustee and as a kids' team leader, but her greatest influence is on her colleagues at work where she engages with every member of her team. She gets to know every family they represent. She encourages them to bring their whole self into the workplace and to become the best that they can be. She wrestles with the challenges that being in an environment like that brings, that we all know. But she's involved with colleagues in her life and she's got engaged in their lives, inviting them to Alpha when it was appropriate. And I love it, she introduces all the time Biblical concepts of teamwork and leadership right under the radar. They have no idea of the little phrases that uh, she's introduced into the workplace that help her team to work more productively, more effectively, and more healthy because of the things that she's learned at church and shared with the teams that she's worked with. All that's to say with those two people, just that this doesn't look like one thing. This looks like what you have in front of you. This looks like what you have in your hands. This looks like your workplace. This looks like your opportunities. This looks like the things that grab your heart for the long term or for a season. For me right now, that's in the work that I do, Paul and I run a business together. And at the school gate, where I have the privilege of extending the kingdom amongst a hugely diverse group of men and women, rich and poor, secular and religious, and in raising my girls to be kick-ass. 
<laughs> and who do I pay them to be? Um, I started life as a lawyer, and um, although it seems like a, a, a long time ago, I remember experiencing the power of God on a Sunday morning and going into work on a Monday morning, and by lunchtime I'd be absolutely miserable because revival hadn't broken out. <laughs> you know, it was hard, but it took me a long time to realize that God loves law firms, and God needs... <laughs> Amen, Lauren. And God needs accountants, Addison, and all the different things that we do. You know, we, we're not going to have revival by lunchtime, people. It's just not going to happen. But we are there to shine a light, and we are there to bring God's presence, and we are there to... Can I encourage you to pray for your colleagues yeah. and for it not to be the last thing that you do, but for it to be the first thing that you do? One thing I learned during that time was how to intercede for people, for my colleagues and for my clients, and to see situations change. And I will have no way of knowing if there are less divorces in my law firm because of the way I pray for people. I will have no way of knowing whether there are less eating disorders because of the way I pray for people, less abortions, less depression. You don't, you don't necessarily get to know that. That's not up to you. But you can pray and you can see lives changed around you because of your prayers. Good. So that's the kind of things that it looks like when we do this individually. What does this look like when we do this together? Well, Job Club is a great example. And Food Bank, and when we gathered the clothes and sent them out to Syria. I want you to imagine um, that London is a, just a dark place, not too difficult, but I mean, like, you know, everyone's turned the lights off. And then, slowly but surely, there are pinpricks of light all over London. And I just like to imagine that that's you getting up in the morning and going out onto the tube, onto the bus, walking to work and getting into your workplaces. And imagine if that's how the Lord sees it. Mm. Just these pinpricks of light, and they all add up, they all add up to something. Everything that we do. There are vineyards across the UK that do extraordinary things when they gather together. Um, some of them you may have heard of, some of them you may not, so just quickly I just thought I'd say. Um, Carlisle has this um, fantastic thing that it does once a year where um, their, their vision is to bring life to the city, very much like ours, and they've um, brought about this initiative where they mobilise hundreds of people from across the city, asking them, what can you give? On one day, what can you sign up for? What can you give? And people give an hour. They're electrician. They give a day um, of their time as an electrician to sort out electricity in people's houses. Um, people made plant pots for the um, houses where people's, um, the houses were washed away in the floods. You remember Carlisle had horrendous floods. And um, Carlisle Vineyard has done this, and it's an initiative that's known across the city um, for, the, for the one day in the year when people volunteer their time and their skills and their talents to bring life to their city. Um, Manchester Vineyard, the day after the arena attack, was out amongst the emergency services, out in the streets where um, the would-be terrorist lived and was associated um, with. Uh, handing out bottles of water, listening to people, offering to pray for people, um, mobilising their people to be present when they were needed. Kingston Vineyard, not very far from us, is a tiny, incy, wincy little vineyard, and it has an extraordinary broad influence on its city. Yeah. Um, they started by gathering babies clo baby clothes and giving it to single parents, and um, they now have a premises, and social services sends them pretty much anyone and everyone they can find. 
and they have an incredible impact on uh, young single parents in the city. Some of these things sound like, well, maybe they just it's just a makeover. You know, I, I saw a makeover program at the end of one a few weeks ago, and um, this team came in, and they absolutely transformed these people's house. They knocked it down, they rebuilt it. They were a family with uh, disabled children, and uh, they absolutely transformed this house. And so you can ask, you know, was that just extending the kingdom? Is that not just what we're doing when we do these lovely things? But you heard Cheryl talk about um, Job Club, and you see the things that we do. Despite the amazing things that Makeover team did, they will not be there the day after they finish the Makeover. They have to go back to their day jobs. But as the church, we're called to turn up, to show up, day after day after day. And we have more to offer. We have more to offer than anyone else. Uh, St. Clements, the church in the shadow of the Grenfell Tower, the vicar there uh, was interviewed this week, and he said, I don't know what time it was, 2 a.m., 3 a.m. in the morning, after the fire started, he said, we went into the building, we opened the doors, and we turned the lights on. Steve talked the other week about the importance of when we do church, we open the doors. We open the doors. We're to be present. We're to be incarnational. That's what you're doing when you show up at work. When you go and visit the same cafe, the same coffee shop every week, and engage with the barista, and don't just ignore them. That's what you do when you see your neighbours on the stairs, in the corridors. That's what we do. We're showing up. We're being incarnational. We're bringing the presence of God. It's really good. Um, the vision that uh, John and Debbie Wright had for the vineyard movement in the, in the UK, I just wanted to read this before we move on, is this. This is what we're a part of. We are a growing movement of churches built on God's transforming word who worship God with passion, intimacy, and expectation. We are God's children, empowered by his spirit, extending his kingdom together everywhere in every way. We will serve people, especially the poor and the vulnerable, and communicate the goodness of Jesus and compassion and generosity. We will make disciples, develop leaders, plant churches, and contribute to the blessing of the whole body of Christ. That's the vision for our movement of churches in the UK. That's something that Balan Vineyard is a part of, and um, that's something that we get to be a part of. We get to share in. So is this extending the kingdom thing something you need to just add to your to-do list? No. <laughs> we can feel like that. Some of you are stressed out of your head. You've got enough on your plate and you're thinking, what another thing I need to do. Okay? That's not, that isn't how it works. This is about you being you. You come and worship the king. He will make you more fully you and you will be more effective in what you do without wondering how I love my neighbor today. <laughs> Is this something that you can do only when you have your life together? No. No. We're just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. Okay? We don't do this when we're fixed. We don't do this when we're holy. Otherwise, we're going to be waiting a very long time. There's an old saying um, that God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And there's no special calling on this. Do you need to be a history maker or a world changer to be able to do this? No. Forget about being a history maker. Forget about being a world changer. Let God take care of that. This is about you being fully you. It's about you loving him and worshipping him and by his strength, loving the person in front of you, seeking first his kingdom, and he will take care of the rest. Romans 12 describes it like this. Here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life 
your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. So we are taking all that God has given us into the places that we go each day and inviting the kingdom to come. How do we do this? His book. God has got all the resources that you need. I was praying with someone last night and I just felt the Lord saying, we can't outrun him. We can't outgive him. You can't outlove him. You can't out be angry than him. You know, when we see injustice and we see things happening and we get me and shaking our fist at God, and he's like, yeah, that upsets me too. What can we do about that? I want you to do this, God. Well, I want you to do that. <laughs> Sometimes we're the answer to our own prayers. We need to realize that. But God has the resources that we need. He has everything that we need. Every chance we get, we turn our attention to him. Worship the king. Worship him every chance you get. Turn your attention to him. However you worship, listen to worship music on the tube, on your way to work. Whatever it is, stick scripture up around your house. Whatever it is that's going to get your attention and turn it towards Jesus. And cry, come Holy Spirit, come and fill me. I need your presence. I cannot do this today without you. Because you carry his authority. It's in you. Wisdom, compassion, and power. You change things because of him. His presence in you enters the room when you enter the room. You have the capacity for the impossible for the unlikely, for the unexpected. There's no pressure on you. It's all on him. But you carry that. That's his bit. Your bit, be expectant. Jesus said, I only do the things I see the Father doing. Again, the onus is all on him. Have a look around. What is he doing? What is he doing in your workplace? What is he doing in your family right now? Who comes to your attention? I know the school gate, I thought it would be the dullest place on earth. I was dreading the school gate. But I tell you, the presence of God is there. And I look around and I'm asking God, where are you working? What are you doing? Who are you speaking to? And I see some really great people and I want to go and chat with them or get to know them. And God says, I'm over here with this person. And I'm okay, I'm over here with this person. People get attracted to you for, for no reason, for weird reasons. I, you know what? I have, we have, last Friday, we had this weird thing happen. A Muslim family, um, who I know really well, told me, make sure you're going to be here on Friday. I've got something for you after school. And I was like, okay. So um, I get there after school, and they've got a whole heavy bag. Oh, hang on, I've got to stop first. On the way home, on the way from drop off that day, I see another family. Very sweet family that I've been praying for. You know, I prayed for this family to conceive in the, in the street. We were talking, little Sri Lankan family, don't speak a lot of English. Um, pray for her to conceive. She got pregnant and she lost the baby in a, in a horrible way. And um, it's just on us to be present with these people. It's on us to be present with people because we have Jesus and they need Jesus. I'm talking to her on Friday, and she's showing me all these bizarre vegetables she's just got from the marketplace in Modern, which I love. They all look like they came from the BFG. And, um, and she says she's making a curry. She's making a curry. I don't know why she's telling me that, because that's what she always makes. 
Anyway, she's telling me what she's going to be cooking tonight. She's got the vegetables. And then she says, I'm going to make you a curry. And I was like, you really don't have to do that. Um, no, I am. I am. I'm going to make you a curry. And I said, you know, please, you don't feel you have to do that. No, I'd really like to. Can I do that? Will you be there after school? Yes, I will be there after school. You won't leave without seeing me, will you? No, I won't leave without seeing you. I get to school. By the time I leave school, I have two heavy carrier bags. One full of curry, enough curry for Paul and I, potato curry, lamb curry, all kinds of manner of sauces that one family has cooked for us. And in my other hand, I've got onion bargees, poppadoms. I've got everything you can imagine. Paul and I, I mean, we literally, we would have spent 30 quid at the takeout. I, I can't explain why on earth people would give us food, two different families, on the same day. It has to be the Lord, and I don't know why you would do something like that. But it's the Lord. I think it's the Lord. You, can't, you don't get to decide what it looks like, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. You get to show up. We do our... That's our bit. Our bit is that you're not alone. Um, Ephesians 4 tells us that the church is for equipping the saints for works of service. We are in this together. There's a wise man called David Pictures, and he says the meeting place is the learning place for the marketplace. Church, people, is where it's at. We can get filled with the Holy Spirit, we can get super excited, but we retain our heat better together. Mm. Filled with the Holy Spirit, we get all fired up, but we need to do this together. Church is where we learn, it's where we practice, it's where we give, it's where we receive. We describe it as a family, as a hospital, as a school and an army. It serves all these functions. We need each other. We need each other. Don't think you can do this on your own, because you can't. It's not a holy huddle where we come to escape the world, but where we come to encounter the king and be equipped for the world. We come in to be sent out. We are a sent people. Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me, all you who are weary. Come to me, all you who are thirsty, all you who are heavy laden, and go, go out into the world. So let's just take another look as I wrap up at Isaiah, Isaiah 6. The, second, the end part of that passage, Isaiah has seen the king. He says, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. When it touched my mouth, he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am. Send me. Let's stand for a minute. No one go anywhere. Alexander's about to come up. But let's just stand for a minute. <laughs> Close your eyes if you don't mind and put out your hands. Lord, I pray this weekend that we would see you. Every one of us would see you anew. Every one of us would encounter the King. Every one of us would have a moment, if just for a minute, of being lost in worship, lost in adoration, with our utmost attention on you, with our adoration, our hearts, our orientation, all that is within us turned towards you. And as we feel unclean, as we feel ruined, we would receive that touch of, of forgiveness, of freedom, of your righteousness, of your grace and mercy, fall upon us and touch our lips. Would it break the power of every sin? Would it break the power of our shame? Would it break the power of our fear? Would it break the power of our past off of us? 
and in receiving your touch, in receiving your attention, would you fill us up and send us out?